been fascinated by talking to creative people, those who think differently, understand uniquely, and see the world in their own way. Now don't get me wrong, I love what creatives produce, but often, the story behind the story is what really inspires me, because I want to know where ideas come from, because that's where the magic happens. That's the creative backstory. is my guest today on the creative podcast and i'm excited to share a little bit of his world with you because it's highly creative imaginative and uh takes a lot of skill to do what he does he lives in maine with his beautiful wife and my good friend lucky platt he is a master marquetry artist who incorporates his designs into guitars furniture art pieces portraiture and more his artful guitars have been featured by Gibson Guitars Custom Shop and most recently the Allman Brothers Museum at the Big House. His influences are found everywhere and from every time period, and I can't wait to unpack some insights from his processes. So let's get started. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, great. Well, I'm glad to be here, Kelly. I just didn't have to travel very far. Just isn't isn't yeah, the one thing about the pandemic that I can say, it's kind of made a lot of this pretty accessible, which is nice. Yeah. So yeah, I, when I was first learning about your work from, from Lucky, um, we talked a lot about um, you having a, a big conundrum and figuring out if you were more artist or craftsperson. Do you want to talk about the difference? And then we'll figure out which one you are. I think I already know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, if you go right down to how I grew up, I would say it was a household of craft. There was a lot going on there. Uh, my uh, mom and dad were makers of things and fixers of things. And uh, so uh, there was a workshop in the basement where there was a basic kind of woodworking equipment. There was a scroll saw and a little table saw and uh, like hand tools and drills and uh, so there's always a sense that if you wanted something and you could, you made it. And uh, <clears throat> so with my mom, she was uh, always sewing things, but also did some woodworking and uh, would try things like uh, just out of the blue, taking up uh, net making, see what that was like. And uh, <clears throat> so just the sense that you could explore stuff. My dad uh, was more of a like, hey, we need a new piece of furniture over there. I'll make it and uh, had a boat and uh, fixing that up a lot and my sister and brother that were older than me they were also both making things my sister more sewing and my brother uh, just kind of craft things and uh, fixing his amplifiers and stuff uh, a lot of that going on so it's just like uh, the big question of the household like you could ask at any time is like hey what are you making and, uh, so I grew up with that influence and joined right in so it's definitely the craft side of things yeah, my dad built a lot of the furniture that's actually still in their home. Um, it's It's been beat up and dog affected and uh, but um, it's been in it's been in their house for I'm gonna say 40 years if not more. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the stuff they've made and you know, and he was really good at it. So that's yeah. uh, what do you have in your house that comes from that basement? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> well, we have a camp next door and uh, there's a couple of things there that were some of my earliest uh, woodworking projects. Uh, so my grandparents uh, built a camp on uh, Unity Pond here in the central Maine. 
And I was coming up here as a kid and fell in love with it and ended up building a house next door. Uh, but the camp is still in the family. And in fact, uh, Lucky's mom is staying there right now, which is a treat. Oh, tell her I said hi. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> will do. Uh, but there's a couple of old picture frames that I had made uh, and uh, kind of a wall hanging cabinet that when I first uh, started realizing um, that one might be able to make a, like there was such a thing as fine furniture making and, and one could make a career out of it. Uh, I dove into that a little bit and that was one of my early efforts. Uh, that's amazing. That's cool. So talk about artist versus craftsman. Uh, well, for me personally, uh, <clears throat> it took me a long time to figure out and uh, it's probably Probably around 2000, I did uh, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way uh, book, uh, where it's kind of an exploration of yourself. And uh, a lot of it's based on uh, the morning pages, as she calls them, of doing three pages of longhand writing every morning through the course of the reading of the book. And the book is kind of set up in chapters that you would do one a week. I think there might have been 12 chapters. So it's 12 weeks of writing three pages every morning. And I, I don't know how I did it, but I mostly kept at it. Uh, it just, um, and that through other things, I just started realizing like uh, being an artist is not so much the output of your skill, it's also just the way you think. Uh, it's like a different operating system than being an accountant or brain being sure. somebody that's more driven to uh, uh, speak uh, as their primary level of communication. Uh, but uh, I think in my mind, there's always a conjuring up of imagery and uh, uh, a putting two and two together and everything I see to make uh, disparate things come together in connections that uh, maybe other people wouldn't see. I uh, love that. And also in my family history, I uh, do have um, <clears throat> a great uncle that was a uh, well-known illustrator of his day around 1900. Uh, was actually doing uh, magazine covers for the Saturday Evening Post before uh, Norman Rockwell showed up on the scene. Uh, so his paintings and uh, paintings of his friends that he ended up with uh, were in my grandparents' house, in my own house, and uh, wow. just other art in the wall. I just, for whatever reason, I found uh, myself, um, you know, really deeply looking at them, even as a, you know, uh, before I was 10 years old. It, Probably had them memorized by heart, but I didn't even know, you know, how to translate what I was looking at into, you know, how did they do it? It was just more like uh, seeing it as a kind of a storytelling or something that kind of comes through on my work today. I think. Yeah, I see that too. And I mean, you're telling stories on guitars and and pieces of wood, and even I really like. Um, the you put monthly signs out on your walk that I found pictures of on your website, your March, April, oh, yeah. May, you know, they're so fun because do it. Well, tell people about those and then we'll. we'll... Yeah, well, I guess I had one further thought about the artist before I get oh, into that. It's go. just like, uh, uh, so I became a professional craft artist making, you know, a woodworker in like 1981. I just like, boom, that's it. I am that. Uh, but to claim uh, that. I am an artist. I, I, it was more like a coming out. Like I had to admit it to myself. <laughs> then, uh, the first time I remember saying it to somebody was uh, at a craft show in Belfast where I'd uh, 
uh, known one of the exhibitors, but hadn't really seen his work before. And when I started looking at his work closely, uh, he just kind of looked over and said, oh, are you an artist? And it took me like 10 seconds to answer like, uh, yeah, uh, kind of softly, <laughs> uh, which is ridiculous now, but it's just the way it was. It was just, uh, I never really thought about it that much. And I just, I knew I had the ability to create art, but I saw myself as a craftsman. Yeah, mm. oh, that's interesting. I like your phrase, craft artist. I think that that says something and kind yeah. of explains a little more about it. So maybe that'll come, maybe that'll, we'll hashtag it and maybe it'll be popular, you know? <laughs> yeah, so. uh, but with the monthly sign, so, you know, I just mentioned uh, like noticing connections between things. Uh, there's also like physical connections and how things attach to other things. And at some point, uh, there's a couple of things coming together here. I noticed that there's the signpost on the end of our dirt road leading in, it's called Meadow Lane. And it's the typical ubiquitous signpost. It's got a metal post with the uh, street name at the top. And the metal post is perforated with holes uh, that you can use to attach the street name to. And I guess they just make endless runs of this and chop them to length or whatever. Uh, but I realized at some point that the holes were on a one inch spacing and it's like, aha, like what if I attach something to that? <clears throat> and uh, also I've had like this inner urge to be a, uh, somebody that does sculpture and, uh, and just the concept of uh, public art uh, intrigued me. Uh, we had, as a family, uh, visited Quebec City uh, a number of times and it's just a city brimming with sculpture and uh, very accessible and very much loved by the public. You could just see it as people were walking by. And I realized living here in Central Maine that I could drive for a couple hours and not see one piece of public art. Uh, so it was kind of in my mind to complain about it, but then I thought, well, instead of complaining about it, why don't I do something about it? Uh, so I hit on this idea of just uh, creating a sign for each month uh, of the year and hanging them off this street uh, sign uh, right out at the end of our road. And so it's uh, Meadow Lane joins up with Horseback Road and Horseback Road goes through three towns and it's it's fairly busy. So a lot of people see it. Uh, so um, in making these signs, I had parameters for myself that it would be uh, kind of meaningful to this area in particular and that it would be referencing something that one does or could do or used to do right here. And um, also that it have some kind of playfulness to it. Uh, I didn't want to take on religion or politics uh, or anything that would declare myself this way instead of that way and people would be that way and scoff at it or something. I just really wanted something um, mostly uh, to just amuse the crowd or especially kids. There was, uh, in my hometown growing up, there was a guy that in the wintertime made ice sculptures out on the front of his lawn that were phenomenal. I can remember uh, like Santa in a sleigh with reindeer, it was a fuzzy childhood memory, but just that notion of a way to give back to the, the people around you in uh, something like in that, uh, 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 what is it? The bumper sticker that says random acts of kindness, you know, it's right, just, right. nobody's forcing me to do this. Nobody's paying me to do this, but I did it anyways.
and they're awesome. they're great um so every month it's something that goes on in maine that's kind of amusing like yeah. a little skater in january and they're beautiful yeah yeah, and a lot of fun. I think January is actually a couple of skis stuck in the snow. Skis, yeah. Yeah, like uh, old-fashioned skis, and you can see the ski poles, too. That's and, uh, fun. February's ice skating is actually somebody taking a spill, so they're kind of midair before and their skates are all akimbo. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's uh, great. And do you get response from them? Do people tell you about them? And yeah. Uh, yeah, I've had no comments over the years that just people come up to me and just say, I love your signs. Or uh, uh, There's a woman in town that's just opening a public library now, and she mentioned wanting to get them all up there on display, uh, which I could do at some point, possibly, but I'm having more fun just hanging them out by the roadside. Right. So one thing I found, it's uh, you find out how quickly a month can go by when you have like a monthly task to do. So. <laughs> <clears throat> first of every month i'm out there with a ladder and uh taking the old one down putting the new one up and so it's kind of nice people. yeah yeah that's good and i like the idea about um creating a, a local art scene we had um another podcast guest who's a musician who does these open mics and he always said if you want to if you want a creative community make it so yeah i think that that's that's perfect yeah. Yeah, I came to the conclusion. Uh, uh, I live near Colby College, and uh, there was a lecture by the Gorilla Girls uh, that came in probably 15 years ago or something. And rightly so. They were a group of uh, artists that wanted in on the New York art scene. Uh, and they were, you know, at that point, uh, women were completely underrepresented. Uh, I'm sure you can make a case that many people are underrepresented. Uh, but just through the course of their talk, I was saying, you're right, you're right. But also saying, like, the art scene is not New York. The art scene is not L.A. or Paris or any place. It's, it's in your heart. It's like right here, right now. And if you can bring that to the world, uh, how much stronger than it is to do that than it is to compete for the very few spots in the major art centers that you know, everybody knows yeah uh, in your small community or in your town or whatever you are like what's and what's stopping me do i need to have representation in a gallery to create uh the answer is hopefully no <laughs> just do right. it anyway right yeah. i had you know like um i know your wife and i had many conversations about about um that moment of discovery when I was actually surprised that someone offered me money for something I made. And I don't know if you have a story about that. It sounds like maybe that was one of your coming out realizations that you have a skill that not everybody can do and that people want. Do you have a story about that? Um, well, yeah, I think I've been a kind of a, a growing up a kid that always was making money on my own and you know, I couldn't didn't want to rely on my parents to hand me money uh so cutting lawns initially going on like newspaper uh recycling drives we just like go around with my friends and ask for everybody's newspapers and then bring them to the recycling place they'd give you so much per pound and uh onto like variety of uh delivering newspapers and uh yeah I guess so I went to business school and uh <clears throat> It's just I'd gone 
you know, there's a pragmatic side of me and a musician side of me. So I thought at that period of time, I wanted to open a music store. Um, but through high school, I took all the art and craft classes that I could. And I was seeing that I was getting better and better at drawing. I think by the time I was a freshman in school, I was like, it got better again. And uh, one of my uh, school uh, dorm uh, mates uh, saw me drawing something someday and actually hired me to create the cover for one of his reports. Uh, gave me five dollars for it. So it was, wow. Like, it was not forgotten. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I uh, love that. Yeah. But I think uh, after two years of business school, I just I just could not envision myself. Uh, it was really a corporate training center. It wasn't really a, a place to learn how to uh, be an entrepreneur. And I think I already had that gene anyway. So I just knew I had to be making something or moving anyways. I couldn't sit behind a desk anymore. <clears throat> right. Right. So I think I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the aspect of you that's art and business, because I don't know that a lot of artists never think about the business side or just don't have the brains to, or just as a lot of business people can't do the, the work of an artist. So it's interesting that you have both. Mm. That's a gift. I think it's not that common. Yeah, I'm not sure I have both at the same time, though. I feel like it's uh, <clears throat> like one brain is is running the show until the other one wrestles it away. Uh, I think that business school, it did leave an impact and I can get really uh, kind of analytical, thoughtful, precise about, um, I would say more or less like, how am I gonna commute? And how am I gonna communicate with somebody? in letter writing uh, to craft a, a business letter that you know, hits all the, the bases, sounds professional and uh, you know, gets the point across that you're trying to make. But when I'm in that frame of mind, I can't really believe that I can create the things that I can create. It's kind of like a little bit of skepticism. It's like, well, yeah, you used to be able to do that, but you probably can't do it anymore. Uh, but as soon as I get started on something, then that side just takes over and you know all the skill is still there it's just been running idle for a little bit uh, so it's a little bit of a tension in there that's probably okay hasn't stopped me from doing anything and i think a lot of people struggle with that and have a a critical voice that really just does shut them down uh, so i think probably a, a little bit of dissent is good but not not too much i always like this training just helps i'd say overall to treat it professionally and, and keep some kind of oh, we just, livelihood. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm reminded of uh, Anne Lamott in one of her books. I think it was Bird by Bird. She talks about whenever you hear that little voice in your head, you picture it as a jar that you put these, the voices, these little mice running around and you pick them up and you put them in a jar and then you can close the, you know, you can close the lid and just continue working because they're not bothering you anymore. I always found that amusing. Yeah. Little mice, you know, in a jar. So, yeah. So, but I think that's great. And I think that's probably encouraging to a lot of people because those voices in our heads tell us all kinds of things. Yeah. But, you know, and I think, you know, it's nice to be, to get rid of them in whatever way. So whether it's your business sense or your practical sense or, I would think that there are other things. Other artists probably are good to call and yeah, 
Yeah, I think uh, it's just a notion of uh, all these things that we talk ourselves out of doing. Uh, somebody asks you the question, can you draw? The majority of people say no. Can you sing? No. Can you dance? No. Uh, it's just like, you know what? It's our birthright. It's, it's just this odd moment in time when uh, all these things are available to us from somebody else instantly on a screen. Uh, and, you know, we think because we're not as good as that person on the screen, then we don't have the ability or the right to do it at all. It's kind of sad. Uh, but I teach uh, woodworking skills at a school in a nine month program. And I know by the time I get there, four or five months in, I do a one week segment uh, that they've already had some drawing instruction. And I just usually at the beginning of class ask, you know, show quick show of hands, how many people can draw? There's a dozen people there, maybe two or three raise their hand. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's how strong that, that voice is that stops you from doing things that are just fun. You know, the, the better question is, can I draw well? No, but I enjoy it anyways. And <clears throat> I like to scribble or whatever, uh, or, you know, nobody's asking you to dance like a pro at the wedding, uh, just dance, you know, or <clears throat> all these things. So I think probably the, the trajectory of my life is certainly to open up, open up, open up, uh, to counteract the kind of brainwashing of growing up in a neighborhood and a community and a country that kind of likes to keep you repressed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, I think we need that freedom to experiment. And I'm a, I'm a girl, I like, I like the instant gratification. If I get out a piece of paper, I want to draw that fish and I want it to look exactly like the fish in my head. Yeah. And it never does. But if I draw it 10 times, I'm getting a lot closer. So I oh, feel yeah. like, I feel like, you know, it's worth going through. Yeah when it's easy, but, um, you know, woodwork, I want to talk a little bit about your marquetry art, because I think that a lot of people maybe aren't that familiar with it, but what you do and why I really like what you do and why I like the artist, um, in you about the way you see things is you've taken so many silly images that look like, a selfie or a little slice of life and you create them in wood which sort of gives them this solid importance frozen in time that's a little beyond what i would see what i would think about in a painting or a photograph because i look at that and i think man that would take that would take me forever to make i mean it really like you're really committing to these images and they're lovely and fun yeah. so you want to talk a little bit about marquetry and what it is and what yeah. draws you to it? Uh, well, this is something I encounter when I teach. Is like if I try to explain things in words, I'm going to create a mental image in whoever is hearing this uh, in their mind. So, so first I'm going to say, hey, visit my website, James McDonald Art Guitars, uh, and take a look at what I do. And then uh, you can see if my words match up or not. Uh, but basically what I'm taking, my, my medium is wood veneers, very thin wood veneers. Uh, of all different kinds and I'm cutting them with a, generally speaking, a scroll saw. That's a, a saw that goes up and down, kind of like a sewing machine uh, with a very small blade. And uh, when uh, I'm done cutting these things, I'll create pieces that 
I tape together and keep taping them together and keep taping them together till I end up with this big sheet of one layer thick veneer that has all the picture, all the pieces of the picture, uh, and then glue that onto some kind of surface, either a panel if I'm making artwork for the wall, could be on a tabletop if I'm making furniture or a guitar body for the art guitars I'm making. It's amazing. Did it always occur to you to put marquetry on a guitar? Because I think they're so, what you're doing is so fun and interesting. Uh, it goes way back to, uh, <clears throat> I've been playing guitar since I think I was nine years old. And uh, I think maybe by the time I was 11 or something, somebody gave me a subscription to Guitar Player Magazine. And uh, one of the articles I remember from way back when was a uh, uh, featured a guitar that was made for John McLaughlin that had uh, uh, two necks. It was a double neck guitar and it had pearl inlay on each neck that I just thought was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Wow. Uh, so that stuck in my head. And uh, also, I think in seventh grade, there was a show in the early 70s called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Uh, and uh, the musician Steve Miller was playing and he had a guitar that the body was covered with uh, some kind of filigree. It was, I've, I've seen this guitar sense and my memory created something a little bit different, but just that idea you could put a design right on the guitar body uh, stuck with me. And actually the guitars I make now are based on that fuzzy memory of Steve Miller's guitar way back when. That's cool. Yeah, and uh, as far as I know, there's not too many people just doing marquetry on guitar bodies like I, no, and they're stunning. So do you remember the first one you made? Can you tell us what that looked like? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I've been doing marketry for a few years and liking what I was doing. And uh, I found out that uh, Gibson Guitars had a custom shop and I just sent them pictures of my work on a lark. It was like, uh, I don't know, maybe they'll do something with it. And uh, this is snail mail, you know, actual pictures in, in the mail. And a couple weeks later, I get a phone call and uh, it was somebody from Gibson and they loved my work. And uh, they said I had a program called the Visual Artist Program where they're inviting artists to create on their guitars. And the upshot of the conversation was, uh, yeah, we'll send you a guitar, see what you can do with it. And uh, <clears throat> after I hung up the phone, I, I hit the ceiling like with joy because I've always been a Gibson <laughs> guy. You got Ford guys and Chevy guys, and there's Gibson and Fender guys, and I'm definitely in the Gibson camp. So, uh, so they sent me a Gibson Les Paul that was like ready for the next step of finishing. So the guitar was all together; it just didn't have the pickups or knobs or anything like that on it. Uh, and I created a design for that that was uh, a little bit wacky. Uh, that this is an electric guitar, a solid body electric guitar. So a created a marquetry image of an acoustic guitar that kind of overlaid the electric guitar. And That's so cool. The acoustic guitar has a sound hole, uh, that round hole in it that the strings go over and that's where the noise comes out. Right. Uh, and in that sound hole, I created my version of the muse and the muse was like a female figure uh, that was kind of poking her head out of the sound hole yeah, uh, kind of casually leaning her uh, forearm on one of the strings. And uh, it's just kind of a 
describing the experience of, I like to jam with other musicians and uh, it's just that experience of all of a sudden you're playing much better than your lessons ought to allow. Like it feels like there's a spirit inside that instrument that you're holding that is just pulling stuff out of you and saying- Love that. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And uh, making you bigger than you than you ought to be. Uh, my gosh, you've taken the guitar and raised it to the uh, storybook status, which is amazing. Uh, <laughs> oh, I have a lot of fun with that. And, uh, yeah, and then uh, Gibson got it back and finished it and put the pickups in and the knobs and uh, it uh, ended up in a gallery in New York City in Soho at uh, a show uh, that they invited me down to the opening for and I had my 15 minutes of fame. I was interviewed by the local news uh, station and uh, got to meet the president of Gibson. It was kind of big, big fun in my life. Uh, and somebody from, fun. yeah, ended up selling to somebody from Japan uh, about a week later. That's and, amazing. I know Japan has an insane number of guitar collectors, and I always wonder what happens to guitars after they leave us, but and go to Japan. Like, are they showing them? Uh, I hope it's on display somewhere. Do you know? I do know that the last I knew it a couple of years ago, it ended up in France. <laughs> so a collector there had uh, gotten it and he uh, had a website and I just looked uh, looked for it recently and the website's down. So I don't know, he might have a life change or something, but uh, who knows? That's so cool. I just saw, I just saw your lovely wife flip yeah, by. Yeah. <laughs> you can listen. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think that's amazing. And I do think that you've kind of created a whole little world with that. Do you want to, um, I also really loved your 60s series. Oh yeah, uh, I just finished those up uh, in May to uh, get them down to a guitar show outside of Boston. Oh, are you gonna go? Will you go to the show? Oh, I already went. So oh, it good. was actually in May, so it was- okay. it just, just what I needed uh, deadlines to be able to get these guys uh, done over the line. And uh, uh, I think they're great. Uh, the show itself uh, is still pretty early in the vaccination place. It just wasn't that well attended. So nothing much happened there other than uh, the big news for me was I got the guitars done in time for that. Yeah. Uh, but right now they're sitting in a gallery in uh, Maine, uh, at the school where I teach, uh, the Messler Gallery at the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship in Rockport. Ah, oh, very exciting. It's, yeah, it's a really nice gallery. It's probably the nicest showing of woodworking consistently in the Northeast. Uh, it was the first time I worked in series and uh, the theme was counterculture literature. And just, uh, I am like a product of the baby boomers. I am a baby boomer. And, uh, I was born in 1959 and it's just like my whole awareness of things was initially through the lens of the 60s and it certainly showed up in my doorstep. My brother was eight years older than I am and was an original hippie and uh, there's just, you know, music. He was in a rock band and they practiced in our basement and uh, he left things behind. He wouldn't let me in his room or anything, but he wasn't there all the time. He had to go to school. So he'd be poking around. And uh, at some point I found like he had books in there that I'd never seen or heard of before and started reading them at probably too young an age. But uh, there were uh, counterculture books, the kind of books that your friends passed around that you weren't gonna get from your English teacher. 
And uh, I think um, I kind of broadened it out to be a little bit more like books that impacted you. Uh, it's, it's just the power of books is formidable. And uh, I like to represent them as the physical objects that they are uh, in a way to pay homage to the uh, content and the effect uh, that they give to us. Uh, so uh, so the, my sources for this series were one guitar is uh, uh, looking at uh, Carlos Castaneda uh, and he had a trilogy of uh, books that were uh, about a uh, kind of a bumbling apprentice uh, meeting a wise shaman in the Mexican desert and becoming a student and uh, trying to learn the art of uh, being a warrior. And it's kind of like a, a larger blueprint for full right living uh, in all our capacities as a human being. And that includes interactions with the spirit world. Uh, uh, another one was uh, more of a fun thing. It was uh, Abby Hoffman's Steal This Book. That's my and, favorite, uh, by the way. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to put this picture up so everybody can see it, but it's so fun. Oh, nice. Yeah, it shows uh, the book in the act of being stolen. It's being shoplifted. So <clears throat> but I remember seeing that book in my public library on a paperback rack, and I hadn't heard of it. So I see the cover, and it says, Steal This Book. It's in big letters. And just like I remember like furtively looking around to see you know could I get away with it and um, in seventh grade I, I might have stolen something like it wasn't completely out of my world of existence I had stolen candy bars and stuff so right um, yeah so it's just like that kind of fulfillment of the, the inner you know wondering should I steal it <clears throat> are you worried that people will steal this guitar <laughs> Uh, probably not. It's got insurance and it would, it would be a big splash on the. Uh, no, it'd be fine. I'd rather it didn't get stolen, though. I would too. I would too. Um, but they're awesome. And the other one was um, in the series is all about, I just remember a big Mad Magazine cover, which was a big oh, deal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that one is a mashup of uh, three sources. Uh, it's looking at the year 1966, which uh, in my my own reckoning of things was like a pretty pivotal year in uh, in music, uh, primarily. Uh, that uh, and the guitar features um, the cover of the Beatles Revolver album. Uh, you'll see the four Beatles around the four uh, the kind of the edges of the guitar, but in the center is uh, at the heart of it is the Boy Scout Handbook from 1966. And Mad Magazine has kind of flopped over that a little bit. And then the Beatles Revolver album is surrounding that. Uh, it's as if the Boy Scout Handbook is, you know, every boy's dream up to a certain point and every parent's dream for their boy. You know, that's my boy, such a good Boy Scout. You know, you're going to be an upstanding citizen. And then Mad Magazine comes along and corrupts you and kind of pulls the veil back and says, you know, none of this is serious. It's all open for poking fun at. And then the Beatles come in and the Revolver album is their first foray into uh, mind expansion. I think that they were leaving love be love songs behind in the three minute, you know, very, uh, very well defined about wanting the girl or losing the girl. 
turned into, you know, voyaging to the outskirts of your inner being kind of music, uh, really expansive. And uh, it's just, a, I think, a turning point that led to Sgt. Pepper's, that led to, uh, you know, the flower child you know, movement and all the good things that came from that. And I suppose all the bad things too. So, so this is like your coming of age guitar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think um, I like looking back. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be committing the time it takes to make a guitar into just looking back. But I think, you know, any experience I had in the sixties growing up, even though I was like too young to participate a lot of times, it was just, you know, as, that's another artist aspect of myself of being the observer. Uh, even when I didn't know that's what I was doing, it's just fully remember uh, things that left, you know, powerful impacts on me. So uh, things like guitars and amplifiers and uh, just the way uh, guitar felt or smelled or uh, sounded when you did this to it or that to it, or um, just, all the interactions with the kids in the neighborhoods when uh, the parents weren't really too concerned about your whereabouts. Uh, most of the time, it's more like, you know, just come home for supper. That's, you know, other than that, we don't really want you around. <laughs> so all the shenanigans you would get into. And uh, you know, one of my guitars has a pull tab for a beer thing in it. And uh, another one has like a cigarette butt. And uh, just, you know, kind of the, the stuff everybody was getting into. That. Yeah, I love that. So how do you collect your ideas? Because you put you put a whole novel or at least a very large picture book worth of stories into each one. You know, where do you collect your ideas? And tell me about the process of coming up with that final design. Uh, yeah, well, the one I'm working on right now might be a good example. Uh, I've got a commission for a, a squirrel themed guitar. And love uh, that. Yeah, the guy uh, used to live up in Maine and he moved down to North Carolina and where they moved to is uh, in the hill country. Um, it's around Asheville, North Carolina, lots of rolling hills, but uh, I guess right in their yard, they have lots of squirrels coming to their feeder, which they love and encourage. And the squirrels uh, are mostly albino. So uh, they sent me pictures of albino squirrels and it's like, okay, make a squirrel guitar. <laughs> Uh, so just like some of my parameters are going to be to kind of work with the restricted space of a guitar. It's like an odd shape. It's um, kind of a big sort of figure eight-ish kind of thing where it has a, a waist. And um, most of the biggest real estate is at the, uh, what would be called the lower bout where beyond all the strings. Yeah. Uh, so you just in thinking like, what am I going to put on a guitar? I'm thinking about the shape of it and the placement, the real estate, the map, kind of in trying to uh, make it so it's a successful composition, even though some of it might be removed visually when I put in things like the bridge or the pickups or something, I just kind of uh, leave it up to the viewer to fill in the blanks. I uh, don't want to be completely restricted to just the open areas. Uh, but in that space, I'm looking for, uh, I don't know, it's just like some something dynamic. Uh, so it's not just, don't want to just do a landscape with, you know, mountains and lake and a sailboat. And uh, that's uh, 
kind of the type of marketry that's been done a lot. Uh, so I do want to do things that have not been done before. And I try not to even think as it's going to be marketry, but just think of it completely as composition in which the medium will be marketry eventually. But first off, it wants to be a successful composition that's sure. activated. And I think a lot of it is activated by story, like um, things either symbolically or directly uh, that are meaningful to me. Uh, so in this squirrel guitar, it's like, how many squirrels can you fit on a guitar? It could have fit 20 maybe, but I ended up with two. And uh, <clears throat> I think it might have a little bit of a squirrel as spirit animal kind of mentality because I love watching them. And uh, one of the things I like about them is that they see you and then they get to the backside of the tree where they think that you can't see them anymore, but then they peek. And then uh, if you kind of look at them, then they'll go behind and then climb a little bit more and peek a little bit more. Uh, so I've got one squirrel is in the act of peeking out from behind a tree as if he can't see him, but it's not that big of a tree. So you actually see, you know, most of his head, <laughs> uh, most of his back foot and his tail is actually wrapping around the tree. That's fun. And then I've got another squirrel coming in off the top He's kind of walking out onto a very thin twig. And at the end of the twig, there's like uh, half a dozen acorns. And you can just tell that if the squirrel keeps going, the twig's going to give way and he's going to do a backflip off and hit the ground or do some amazing acrobatics to stay on there. <clears throat> so that hits my desire to be dynamic and playful. And, uh, and I would say uh, never too, too far from a uh, realistic portrayal of things. I, I'm not uh, that much of an abstract person. Oh, right, uh, right. And well, squirrels are entertaining. My favorite squirrel story is um, we were at a friend's house and I have two dogs and the one doesn't really care, but the other one just is so interested in capturing a rodent. He's not fast enough. Yeah. He'll never do it, but he's never going to stop trying. So my friend has a tree in their yard that's that's been cut off. I'm going to say about 10 feet up. It's just been cut off at the top and left there. So it's 10 feet of a tree with like a little plateau at the top. Yeah. So my dog, Bob, chased the squirrel to the top of that platform, and then the squirrel realized it had nowhere to go. Like usually they can, they've got branches. So he was essentially stuck up there. And, you know, so both of my dogs were interested. This was better than TV. We watched this for a good 10 minutes before the yeah. squirrel just, the squirrel just went, I can't be here all day and just committed Harry Carey and jumped into a bush that was like, I'm going to say eight or nine feet away. And it sort of yeah. got it, got tangled in the branches and, you know, scurried yeah. off and that was the end of it. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> fun stuff but i can't yeah. wait to see the squirrel guitar did now when you're working with a client like that you know this is a this is a, a big major long process do they get to how much of it do they get to see beforehand uh generally speaking if i can get away with it i like the big ta-da at the end so i don't like to show my work to the end uh you know the customer or whatever until it's done um uh, and I'm happy with it. And 
I'm not exactly sure where that comes from, but I know with uh, uh, Lucky, when I look at her artwork and it's progressing, it's developing, I can come in one day and look at it and get one conclusion in my head of where she's going to go and come back the next day and it's not that <laughs> at all. So I think uh, you, if you see something half formed, your, your mind is trying to create the rest of it. And I'd rather just uh, let them see the big ta-da and uh, not go off on any tangents that might, like they might see something half done and say, oh, I can see you're gonna do this. Where it's like, not really, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, so I'd, I'd rather not be led too much by the customer. Uh, like I'd like to be provoked in unusual ways, uh, but I don't wanna be uh, like handheld through the process. So I'd, I'd rather make all the choices myself after I hit on what I'd like to do and just ask them to trust me that uh, whatever it is, you're gonna like it. And so far, so good. So. That's awesome. Because I don't know. I mean, I've done, I guess I've done video production for long enough that I know that when I show something to somebody, when it's not finished, they do throw in all kinds of new ideas because they get their own inspiration, which is awesome, but yeah. it's also expensive and time yeah. consuming and things like that. Not that that's a bad thing, but it can be. Yeah you know so that's a, that's kind of cool but i like that and you actually let me just say this too to make sure people understand but you're building not only the art on the guitar you're making the whole guitar yes which is another thing this is the craftsman part of it but um yeah yeah one of my early woodworking jobs uh i lucked into a job at a small guitar company in bridgeport connecticut uh I think my brother had gone to high school with the two partners and uh, I ran into one of them once and he knew who I was and said, oh yeah, we'll give you a job. Uh, so probably was there uh, maybe six or eight months and uh, built like 45 guitars out of a batch of 50 that we started with uh, and did a lot of it myself uh, as the two partners were setting up to, they just started out pretty much and they were they were trying to create jigs that would get them to that next level of like mass production. Uh, but the initial ones were fairly much handmade. And uh, so that's the way I learned to do it. And so I say, and, and, and I didn't forget either. It was a really thrilling period of time in my life. Uh, and, uh, but in making my guitars now, I'm kind of calling back on that memory. And I would say it's uh, probably very similar to the way guitars were made in the 50s, which uh, are you know, hugely collectible now. And uh, because there's a fair amount of handwork in there, they're all just slightly different too. And I, I like the appeal of that. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, I mean, I'm starting with thick planks of mahogany and uh, you know, cutting them down from there into rough shapes and then refining and uh, I think for me, the biggest challenge is probably carving the neck and uh, it's a very sculptural element and I'm just using hand tools to get there to this very precise uh, engineered kind of shape that uh, feels good and uh, comfortable to the musician's hand. Uh, I think the whole deal about guitars is like you hand somebody a guitar, it's you can adapt to any guitar, but some guitars just are right to begin with and 
when you start playing them, you just know that's the one. I call uh, it the sizzle. I feel like when you put it in your hand, it just melts a little into yeah. you, you know, that's how I describe it anyway. Yeah, I would say, you know, just about 100% of the guitars you'll find in a music store, the necks are done with a machine. And, you know, if you get two from the same company, they're going to be the exact same guitar. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's always a little bit of difference in mine. That's it. I don't know. I think it's exciting. That's part of the artwork, I think. Yeah. You know. So what is the biggest response or most interesting response you ever got from one of your instruments? Because it, you know, not only does it have to be beautiful, but it has to function and sound good. So, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I like to play the guitars myself. Uh, I think uh, two years ago, well, pre-pandemic, they uh, uh, in central Maine, uh, there's a town just below Augusta, the capital, that uh, had a guitar festival. And on the closing day of the guitar festival, uh, they invited all the luthiers back and there was a performance uh, by a really skilled guitar player. And then there was like a jam at a place called the, the Wharf. It's right on the Kennebec River. And uh, so uh, I went there with one of my guitars and ended up playing in a jam with the guy that was the uh, brought in to to perform uh and uh somebody i i, I kind of knew but not all that well was there and he said he heard me playing and actually started weeping uh because he put it all together that not only was i playing this thing but i created this thing and it was just hugely in that moment very meaningful to him oh uh, that's awesome so just saying like the big unexpected joy of this is just myself how much I love playing these guitars and uh, at times being able to uh, just play them in a way that moves people uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's as much as I can have, uh, hope for yeah talk about the Allman Brothers guitar talk about all that happened in there and how that got into the big house yeah um, well I would say <clears throat> just seeing lucky coming back in the room now that's all right yeah um so i uh had made the guitar one of my uh like looking back ideas was to pay tribute to the musicians that meant the most to my own uh playing and certainly allman brothers uh were a number one if you heard me play you would see more clearly with them than anybody uh there's that's where his roots are uh, and I would say briefly that it's uh, the notion that uh, this large group of people came together to create a music that was always going someplace. They're either bringing it up, bringing it down, or just charging ahead full steam and then stopping on a dime and off they go again because they all listen to each other. I think there was just a band of musicians that were all very good, but also listened. And that is, just, you wouldn't think so, but it's kind of a rare thing played with a lot of people and uh, most of the time you're listening to yourself and generally speaking you're paying attention to what's going on but when you turn it completely uh, focused and uh, like the teamwork of helping like how can I help this guy who's playing the solo now take it even further uh, that's the sense I got from this band and just very sweet melodic energetic uh, and new kind of an amalgamation of different types of music put together in their own unique voice is super appealing to me. 
so they had an album called Eat a Peach, uh, and the inside cover of that is uh, this illustration that's completely psychedelic. And I decided to take an element of that, of uh, the left-hand corner, and put it on a guitar. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so I spent a lot of time doing it. It wasn't like easy or anything. <laughs> uh, but then started posting it on Facebook on my business page and uh, got a, a, a message from somebody from Macon, Georgia, who said he uh, <clears throat> his older brother was the tour manager for the Allman Brothers way back when. And uh, it's like, I knew that guy's name. He's kind of legendary. And uh, so, you know, what turned from messaging into phone calls into you ought to get down here to see the museum and meet Richard, the uh, director of the museum. And uh, so I did, I ended up taking the guitar down there and meeting all these folks. And there's just a ton of great stories around that. Uh, and uh, ended up agreeing to donate it to the museum. And uh, they, they were very interested in having it. And uh, it would it's going to be displayed in uh, one of their rooms with other guitars and uh, the museum is actually in a house where they had rented it in the late 60s and practiced there uh, to kind of step out and tour and record and everything. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, so just in, while I was down there, you know, played at some famed bar that was just like anybody who's anybody in the world of Southern rock or blues or R&B. Uh, their pictures on the wall signed and, you know, it's just like, wow, this is, <laughs> couldn't have, couldn't have made it up. Isn't that great? I think sometimes, I don't know, that the community of artists and art appreciators and art enthusiasts i i i just am always kind of humbled and i just marvel at the conversations and the places that you know one thing leads to the next yeah. aspect of art and there's something about the process and that's so precious to artists but i don't know that everybody gets that and or gets to have it or experience it but it's really something yeah it's, it's kind of the magic in it all yeah, I think there is magic in it. It's, it's just like, if you, you know, I've been doing this for, uh, I had my own business since 1988. And uh, I would say a fair amount of work was from a known source, but there's just the unexpected shows up, you know, the unexpected phone call, the unexpected letter in the mail, the unexpected email, like, hey, I saw your work and uh, can you do this or can you do that? I, I love that. Uh, it's hard yeah. to directly provoke it, but yeah, I think the best uh, we can do as artists is kind of set the stage. And somebody uh, described it as uh, you know, slowly filling up a pond with water that all these, you know, posts on Facebook and Instagram and, uh, you, know, uh, <clears throat> you know, taking the time to meet somebody and to make sure that you tell them, yeah, I'm an artist, uh, check out my website or hand them a business card or, uh, I did a craft show in New Jersey once and didn't sell anything uh, in the 90s. And it's like three years later, I got a phone call from a guy who said he had my brochure from that craft show hanging on his refrigerator the whole time. And <laughs> all of a sudden, everything lined up where he felt like he had the extra money to buy a table from me. And it's just like awesome. that threw everything on its ear. It's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. 
Like I, you can't plan for that. <laughs> no, but it, there is some kind of marvel in it, you know. Um, yeah. There's just, I try to, you know, I think about all the opportunities that I've had because I sang something in a place and made friends with somebody at the, you know, um, and one thing led to another and all of a sudden I'm photographing somewhere and Tom Chapin taps me on the shoulder and asks me a question about my camera, which is uh, it's weird. You know? yeah. You're like, okay, Tom Chapin, I'll tell you anything you want to know, you know, yeah. or, or I guess another time I was photographing and, um, Kurt Vonnegut's wife came up beside me. She goes, you know, I've, I've been a photographer for a, a long time and I just want to let you know, you did some, you did pretty good, but you made some mistakes. And I'm like, Kurt wow. Vonnegut's wife just told me I made some mistakes. It was like wow. the best. It was just so funny. They're just funny things that happen. Yeah. But, you know, if you hadn't sat down and met somebody who knew somebody and, you know, the networking, yeah. the networking is mysterious and fantastic. Yeah. I know um, I can get a sense when I decline to put myself out there uh, that like probably within 10 minutes or something, the opportunity is gone and I feel like I did something wrong. I didn't, right. uh, like I, I interrupted uh, the flow kind of. The tyranny of the mist. Yeah, yeah. For sure. But it is amazing what happens when we just, I think, I feel like it's our responsibility as artists to just go in there and do something, you know, yeah. and it just see what happens and they resonate. Yes. But um, I really appreciate all the stories and, um, you know, all that, all that uh, collection of, of things that you put so thoughtfully into art. Do you ever think you'll do a marquetry storybook with your wife? Um, I had started a uh, wood burning. This is like pairing with my marquetry is also wood burning elements. I had a lot of detailing with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did, I probably have like a third of the pictures necessary uh, to make a kid's book uh, based on uh, a like 10 year old girl visiting her grandfather and the grandfather has a wood shop and he invites her out to the wood shop to make something. And uh, she's spending the day doing that. That's amazing. Can't wait to see that. It's going to be, yeah. it's important. I think it helps people learn that they can do this. They can ask for, you know, a mentor, even if it's grandpa to show them stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I show up as all the characters in the book is like, awesome. Somewhat, well, I am that young child in the older person's shop and I am the older person looking back and, uh, there's a scene where uh, the guy is more of a father to somebody than the grandfather that he becomes. Yeah. And so it's like there's four different variations of me now. I, I just had my first granddaughter born uh, almost a year ago, a year. Oh, fun. Uh, so I look forward to, you know, possibly making stuff with her too. Oh, I can't wait to see because, yeah. you know, I have a feeling there will be a guitar with a unicorn on it in your future, you know. <laughs> um, well, I'm not going to make any promises there, but. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked you early on um, to kind of give me three tools that you you live by in your artist toolkit. Um, can you share those? Uh, boy, if I told you already, it might be three different ones today. Uh, 
<laughs> you didn't, but you know, just the rules that you found to be true. And I kind of feel like these are the things that kind of encourage up and coming people or people like me who were kind of surprised that someone liked something I made once, you know, or, yeah. and I feel like you've already said a few of them as far as just do it and send yeah. stuff out, you know, but. Uh, well, here's what's coming to me right now. It's a, awesome. it's, uh, <clears throat> uh, it's just that moment of beginning is a powerful tool, like beginning in some tangible way. Uh, getting your hands on something, even if it's like gathering up the tools you're going to need to make something or gathering up the materials you need to make something to get it from your head into the world in some physical way creates uh, momentum that doesn't exist if you're only carrying it around in your head. And um, Sure. Yeah. I mean, my wise guy of responsibility and electricity helps, you know, <laughs> uh, but hand tools are good too. It's just like, um, uh, you know, I would say whatever the opposite of rigid thinking is, uh, it just, you don't need all the proper tools to create. You just need the desire to create. Uh, one of my hobbies is kind of Goldsworthying, I call it, and uh, like playing with the works of Andy Goldsworthy. I love uh, him. A nature artist just goes out into the world and finds things to assemble together into uh, his vision of art. And, uh, and just doing that, it's just like super fulfilling. And, uh, you know, what equipment did it take? Really, maybe a car to get out to wherever nature exists and uh, an open mind. And uh, and that you know, time is the other one. It's give yourself time. It's like uh, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. It's like our our, our days go by super quick. I just uh, we're here. We're little sparks, and then we're gone. Uh, if we don't make time for enriching our lives through exploring what's in us and getting it out, uh, what a loss! And who knows what's working about. Uh, being held back by our busyness. Uh, you know, this whole society we live in is kind of this made up, uh, you know, we're just making it up as we go along. There's no real sense that we're doing it right or anything. <laughs> right. I mean, at heart, we're hunters and gatherers that had plenty of time. You know, once once the food was taken care of, then it was like storytelling and, uh, and dance and uh, music and uh, art. It's like, those are, you know, essential a hundred thousand years ago and they're essential today too. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your process and your wisdom and your ideas. Um, I really enjoyed this. And one of these days I'm coming to Maine. Oh, I do. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we'd love to have that. So come visit. That'd be great. Cause I need, you know, I need to watch, I need to listen to some of these guitars, you know? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, and um, you know we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you. Uh, maybe we'll see you again on the creative backstory if you're willing to come back, and we'll talk some more. Oh, sounds great. Oh, Thank thanks a lot, Kelly. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. The creative backstory wouldn't be possible without the support of JuxtaHub, Emmaus, Pennsylvania's arts and innovation center, where people from all walks of life gather, create, and grow. 
If you've been inspired by a creative person in your life or have a story about your favorite creative processes, we'd love to hear about it. Contact us at thecreativebackstory at gmail.com.